join me in opening your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. You know, the story of Noah and the flood um, is almost unbelievable, but the reason I believe the story of Noah and the flood is because it's mentioned many times throughout Scripture. The prophets use the story to set an example, to show what would happen if the people of God did not turn back, that God's wrath would come upon them. And then we see in the New Testament that Peter mentions it. Uh, but most importantly, the Lord Jesus uses the flood, the story of Noah and the flood. The writer of Hebrews does talk about Noah himself as a man of faith and how his faithfulness to God uh, was exhibited through his proclamation of righteousness during the days leading up to the flood. But in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says something very startling. And I think that when we read it, I think sometimes we can kind of gloss over it. But if we really read it and we listen to what he's saying, it makes you think, wow, that's today. Listen to what he says in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. You know, what, what's, what's so interesting about all this is that he speaks of normal everyday things. He says this is what the way it's going to happen whenever the Lord comes back. It's this normal everyday routine kind of things that are happening and people are just doing their business, going about their lives, and then the flood came and they swept, they were swept away. Well, that's the same way it'll be when Jesus comes back. People will be paying no attention to the things of God, no attention to the proclamation of the coming judgment that's upon the world, and then they'll be swept away. Here's the biblical truth that we're going to have before we even read. God's righteous wrath is revealed against all sin. And as we read together, we're going to hear about the corruption that is in the world. And I want you to think about that as we read from verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 5 and following. So why don't you stand with me? We'll begin in, in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And verse 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word today. We humble our hearts and we accept, Lord, the work that you are accomplishing within us as you refine us, you sanctify us by your word, for your word is true. And we pray, Lord, that even now, Lord, that we would prepare our hearts 
for the day that is coming upon the world where you will return in glory and we will stand before you. And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will be preserved through the judgment. Lord, if there's one here that does not know you, my earnest prayer, Lord, is that they would hear your word and be saved today. Turn from their wicked way and turn to the only hope that they have, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we can make several observations for chapter 6, and we are going to focus in on the corruption that began to happen as man multiplied upon the earth. Notice what it says in chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. The, the uh, answers in Genesis crowd, I, t- I just point you to that and say I may make reference to that multiple times through the series as we talk about as in the days of Noah. But those people have estimated that about 750 million people, the low estimation, were upon the earth prior to the flood. And, and some have said, well, because people live longer, then the birth rate may have been even higher. And so, therefore, there could have been over 4 billion people on the earth. So you get that. Between 750 million people and 4 billion people. I know that's a wide range, but the point is there were a lot of people. There were a lot of people. It wasn't just a few people. There were a lot of people that were living on the earth. And then man's wickedness began to multiply. So as we observe the world in Noah's day, we see man's wickedness. Look at verses 2 and following. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Well, there's been a lot of talk and discussion and speculation about those verses that I just read. But here is what's happening. God saw. God saw what was happening on the earth. Well, what did God see? Well, God saw that the people were full of sexual perversion. And that that there's this evil thing that's happening that the demons, the fallen angels, are taking uh, wives human wives, and they're bearing these offspring that are unnatural. And Jesus linked the days of Noah also with the days of Lot, which is in Luke chapter 17, it's a parallel passage to what we already read, but in Luke chapter 17, Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So you talk for just a second there. How was it in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it was a time of sexual perversion. You think about today for just a moment. I hear all about these on the news about uh, trans story time, drag queen story hour. You, you, you listening? 
sexual perversion, the mutilation of our children, transitioning children. They try to transition. They don't actually transition. Basically, they castrate them. And this is happening. Now, I don't want to belabor the point, but I want you to see that in Noah's day, there was much and rampant sexual perversion on the earth, just as there will be in the last day. But secondly, it was a day of secular philosophy. When the Lord looked down, notice what he said about the people in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, some of your translations may say every imagination, but imagination doesn't mean daydreams. What it means is philosophy. It's the thoughts. It's it's the ideas that the people have. Their secular philosophy today on many of the campuses, the college campuses, the campuses that you might find yourselves on, our seniors today are going to enter into a world of secular philosophy where they're going to teach you that man is the supreme being and that he alone can control his own destiny and that God doesn't matter. In fact, God doesn't exist. God is an imagination. And that we evolved from a single cell amoeba, which by the way, our, our, our very DNA, the composition of human matter, proves that we didn't come from a single cell organism, but we came from the same elements of the earth. That we came from dust. That God piled up dust and threw the spirit of life into Adam, and that's where we came from. We were created. But the secular humanists out there are going to tell you something different. Philosophers are going to tell you you can be your best self. And you can have your best life now. And all of these things. Self-improvement. And, and if you just think positive thoughts, positive energy will begin to surround you. And then your life will just all be positive because you think positively. But if you become negative and all of that, then you'll push people away and you'll have this negative energy around you and your life won't go well. Karma and all those things. All of those secular philosophies were evident in the days of Noah. And the the problem with all of that is, is that secular philosophy didn't solve any of the social problems of the world. It just continued to go downhill in a rampant rate. I heard a preacher preaching and he said they were sliding down the hill with the break off and the street greasy. And we find that secular philosophy today in schools and in news outlets. But not just that, it was a day of scientific progress. They believed that, you know, they were making progress on the earth from the things that they were building. You know, Noah had the capacity, and God knew that he had the capacity, and so he assigned the task to Noah to build a ship about the proportion of an ocean liner that could withstand the most ferocious storm that the world had ever seen. They were building great cities in the day of Noah. Genesis 4 and verse 17 speaks about Cain building a city. So the ancestor of Noah built a city. And so they were making progress 
in that day. And we live in a day of scientific progress. And we, we believe that knowledge is increasing faster than it's ever increased in the history of the world. You just look at computers today and how much smarter they are uh, than they've ever been. And I had my cell phone in my pocket. I took it out. But I could hold up my phone and I say, there is more computing power in that cell phone than there were that, that sent the astronauts to the moon in that cell phone. There's also potentials in genetic engineering today like never before. They're modifying human chromosomes to try to build perfect people in a test tube. And that, that terrifies me because one day I might be obsolete. Artificial intelligence. And you can just, I mean, all you got to do is go Google artificial intelligence and you'll see like all of the doomsdayers on the internet telling us about how artificial intelligence is going to take over everything. And, and I want to tell you something, if, and I said this to my Sunday school class this morning, if we put our faith and our trust in anything that is less than Jesus Christ, we're putting our faith and trust in something that is bound to fail and we're putting it in the wrong place. And you, and you are going to suffer loss if you trust in any of these things. But, but the, the scientific progress and the secular philosophy, it didn't prevent the last one, which was most significant, the social plagues. Think of the, the plagues today. The corruption, violence. Human trafficking, murders. I was listening, I read a news article just, I think it was yesterday. Someone, they were having a birthday party in the evening and someone just drove up and shot everybody that was outside and drove away. There were some other folks that were in a, in a mail room in a, an apartment complex. Some folks drove up and shot everybody in the mail room. I mean... Think about the, the violence today. Now imagine a world with upwards of 750 million people, probably billions of people that are living on the planet and every thought and intention of their hearts are only evil continually. Listen, they didn't build a utopia. And, and when you leave man to his own desires, what results is not a utopia, not a great society, not because uh, man is, is good in his heart. Man is evil in his heart. We wind up with all of these social plagues and, and, a, and a crumbling society where people are, are violent and murderous and sexually perverted. And this is the world that we live in. Without moral law and without the authority divine authority, anarchy will reign over mankind. Where does this come from? Matthew 15 says, Jesus said, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. You know, folks, we live in the world like this not because God did anything wrong or not because God's not aware. The Bible says God saw. And you think, and I think, 
Why would God allow something like that? Why would God allow the world like this? Well, we're going to get to that. But God is patient. Not wishing that anyone should perish. God sees the wickedness of mankind. And what that reminds us is that nothing, not a thing that we do on this earth. No sin, no evil thought, none of it goes unnoticed by a holy God. You hear me, folks? You hear me, church? There, there is nothing evil under the sun that our God does not see. He sees it all. You can't hide it from God. I remember whenever I was a pastor over at, at uh, First Baptist Church Faraday, Louisiana, we had a surveillance system that uh, one of the cameras was pointed right on the kitchen, and we started having a problem. We started losing snacks. They were going away, and we didn't know where they were going. Stuff just started coming up missing, and it's like, well, where's this happening? Well, I, I made it a point I was going to watch the surveillance one evening because I thought I knew who it was. And I was watching the surveillance, and sure enough, this boy, this teenage boy, he snuck back into the kitchen, and he started pilfering bags of chips, stuffing them in his pockets, in his cargo shorts, his cargo pants. Had them lined with bags of chips and stuff that he had gotten from the, and cookies that he had gotten from the kitchen. So I snuck into the kitchen, and I eased up right behind him, and he's crumbling chips in his pockets and all this stuff. And I said, hey, what are you doing? Who? You know, he had absolutely no excuse at that moment because he'd been caught. Someone was watching. There's going to be a day, and Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, when the Lord's going to say, hey, what are you doing? And no one will have an excuse. That's it. Nothing is unseen. And on that day, everything will be exposed. And so we see and we observe man's wickedness, but I want you to see, secondly, God's wrath. We observe God's wrath in verses 6 through 7 and then, and then following. Uh, and in verse 6 it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. The word there is sorry. Now, it doesn't mean that God said, I made a bad decision. Because when we regret, we look back and we say, oh, I made a bad decision. God did not make a bad decision. God made the best decision. But at the same time, when God decided, it also grieved his heart that he did it. The word regret there is an unfortunate translation, but he was sorry. It, was, it made him sorrowful that he had made man. Now God bears the sorrow for every sin. And the Lord Jesus took our sin to the cross. And it grieves him, the Bible said. It grieved him that he had made man to his heart. Ephesians 4 and verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Spirit of God? Well, we grieve the Spirit of God every time we choose sin. Every time we choose to go against God's natural law, we say, God, I don't care what you think. Even though you made me, I don't care what you think about it. I want what I want, and I'm going to get it. 
And so God's decision, the Lord said in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry. That's the same exact word that we saw in verse 6. I am sorry that I have made them. Blot out literally means to take a cloth or a towel and just wipe them, erase them completely from the earth. God sees the wickedness of mankind and it grieves his heart. Not only does he see it, but he feels it inside. Now I want you to understand this. Every one of us have been hurt by someone else, haven't we? Someone has sinned against you. They've done you wrong. They've maybe done you wrong this week. Somebody said something about you or did something to you. And I want you to understand that that did not, first, not go unnoticed by God. God saw that. But secondly, God feels it too. He feels everything that you feel. The hurt and the pain, the sadness that you felt over what someone else did to you. God feels that too. But let me get you, let me just level that field real quick for just a minute. You hurt someone too this week. You said something you shouldn't have said this week. And you caused someone pain and grief that the Lord, He feels. Can I say this too? No one sins inside of a bubble. You don't sin and then affect no one else. Every time you sin, it hurts someone or something. But namely and most importantly, it hurts the heart of God whenever you sin. And I sin. And so the Lord, because of that, He has wrath against the sin. Now I want you to understand, and we sometimes equate wrath and judgment, but wrath is the feeling, that angry feeling that God has toward the sin. Okay? That's what wrath is. Judgment is when God makes it right. Okay? He meets out the judgment upon us. Now that's coming upon the world, but notice that God's wrath was building before that. In Malachi 3 and verse 6 it says, For I the Lord do not change... In other words, he doesn't get over what he sees. He said, I don't just put it aside. He says, therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. And when he says that, he's saying he is holding it and he's keeping it. But at the same time, he's going to do something about it. And you're not consumed. You're not washed away. But God's wrath still remains. Hebrews 10 speaks to this. He said, well, what, you know, what are we going to do about the wrath of God that's upon us? If we, if we neglect Jesus, he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, if we neglect Jesus, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversary." Paul speaks to the same point in Romans 1.18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
And then later in chapter 2, in verse 5, he says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, God doesn't just get over the feeling that he has about sin. God's wrath will either be placed upon Jesus or it will remain upon you. I want you to hear that. The wrath for your sin, the sins that you committed even this past week, even today, God doesn't just get over it. That wrath is either upon Jesus or it's still upon you. So which is it? At the end of time, when we stand before the Lord, the truth will be revealed. Whether you receive Jesus as your Savior, the one who took your wrath upon himself, suffered the wrath of God on a cross, and bled and died for you and me. Or if you deny that salvation and you say, I don't need this Jesus stuff, and you walk away from God's offer, you will suffer wrath. And you'll go into a place of everlasting torment. And so there's God's wrath. But next, let's see Noah's worship. Look at verse 8 again with me. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, there's, there's three basic statements that are made about Noah. The first one is Noah found favor. And that word for favor is the word grace. And it's the first time that this word appears in the Bible. The first time it's ever used. It's used here of Noah. And it says, Noah found grace. Well, what is grace? Grace is the gift of God that you do not deserve. God gives you a gift that you don't deserve. And that favor and those blessings that fell upon Noah, Noah didn't deserve any of that, but God gave it to him. God showed his favor and his grace to Noah. And then in verse 9 it says, not only did he find the grace of God, verse 9 says um, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. When you think about that, it's, it's not that Noah had a righteousness of his own, but that he was justified by God because of his faith. Noah was among those uh, who, in the days of Seth, began to call upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 4 and verse 6 says, In those days men began to call upon the, day, the name of the Lord. And so as he's calling out to God, what does that mean? That means that they acknowledge that God is our creator. And they begin to call on him and submit to him. What is that? That's an act of faith. And Noah was justified by his faith. You can see Noah in the roll call of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. That Noah knew God and submitted to God. Noah was blameless in his generation. Does that mean he'd never done anything wrong? Of course not. What it means is that he didn't keep any unconfessed sin. He brought it to the Lord and he confessed it. And then as a result, in verse 9, the last part it says, And Noah walked with God. You know, teenagers, if there could be said anything about you in this generation, 
May it be said that you walked with God. That you were a child of God that walked with God. And you spent time continually in His presence. And then we see in uh, several passages here that Noah obeyed God in verse 22. God gave him the instructions and he obeyed it. And then um, you see what he, he says about him in chapter 7 verse 1. God tells him, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Noah walked with God and obeyed God. And then verse 5 of chapter 7, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So Noah was obedient to God. God sees the heart that seeks him. Not only does he see the wickedness of mankind and all the world, he sees you whenever you Cry out to Him and you love Him and you obey Him. You pray to Him. He hears every prayer and He carries you in His heart. It didn't matter what happened on that earth, whether God had told Noah to build an ark or a spaceship or a tugboat or a life raft or whatever it might have been, Noah was going to be okay. Do you believe that? Noah's going to be just fine. Because Noah had trusted in the only thing that could save him. And that was God. Nothing else. It wasn't the ark that kept Noah afloat. It was the love of his God. And Noah knew that. Noah worshipped that God. You know, when... All the world around you is bent against God. And you stand for righteousness and truth in the midst of that. And and listen, seniors, I want to tell you this. When you stand for truth in the middle of a world that's crooked and perverse and evil. And you're targeted. God sees that. And he's going to uphold you. Don't quit whenever you get discouraged. Don't quit whenever the world is against you. 1 Peter 3.20 says, God's patience waited during the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. I like that word through. They weren't just upon the water. They went through the water. And you and I, whenever we trust in Jesus and we put our faith in Him, we are going to go through the judgment and the wrath of God. And we're going to be preserved. So we see Noah's worship. But lastly, I want you to see Noah's witness. Look at verses 13 and following there. And so we see that these instructions that God God gives to Noah. The Bible says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and all the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Verse 13 says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. You know, that same statement has been made about our generation today. The Bible declares that everything that we see, everything that we know is going to melt and it's going to be cast into the lake, not of water, but a lake of fire. It's going to burn up one day. Everything that you're worried about today, it's all going to burn up one day. Amen? This building is going to burn up one day. It's going to melt. 
your car that you're struggling to make payments on. It's going to burn up one day. These bodies that we have, that we spend so much time making beautiful, and it doesn't take me that long, but... It, Allison, no, I'm not going to go there. Um, where we, we makeup and hair and the average, average person spends about an hour a day in front of the mirror. These bodies are going to burn up one day. We're going to get new ones, though, praise Jesus. But notice what, it, what he goes on to tell him about these instructions. And I, I just want to hit these really quickly, and you can read along. But notice that there are rooms in the ark. He says, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. There was more than enough room for everything in the ark that needed to be there. And notice I said more than enough, not just enough, more than enough. According to uh, the scientists, the, the creationists at Answers in Genesis, they say without tearing of the cages, only 47% of the ark floor would have been necessary. That means less than half of the ark was necessary for Noah, his family, two of every kind, and the food that they needed and the potable water that they needed for that, the time that they spent on the ark. What's more, many could have been housed in groups, meaning that they could put, put certain animals together and they would need less cages. And that, that would have further reduced the required space. And about what about the provisions? Well, it can be shown that the food would have only filled 6 to 12% of the volume of the ark. The potable water, only about 9%. It was, if you've ever been to the Ark Encounter, and if you've never been, I encourage you to go. But look how big that thing is. It's huge. Eight people, two of every kind of animal. They could have had juveniles. They didn't have to have a big, huge dinosaur. They could have had a little baby lizard-like size animal. Two of every kind. Seven of the clean animals all the food that they needed, all the water that they needed, and still didn't take up half of the ark. And God said, make rooms. Well, what is this about? I think about what Jesus said in John 14 too. In my Father's house are how many rooms? Many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? See, all those years, that 120 years Noah was building the ark, the Bible says he was a preacher of righteousness, a herald of righteousness. With every nail that was hammered in, the sound of that hammer was proclaiming the wrath of God that was coming upon the world. And then Noah was saying, there's plenty of room, there's plenty of room. But no one would listen. said, cover it with pitch. Let me tell you about this word pitch here for just a minute. It's related to the same word that's used later on. That's used in the book of Exodus. Used in the book of Leviticus. 
for the covering that was over the ark. You know, we get our word atonement from this word. Propitiation in the New Testament. The means by which sin is forgiven. As, as Noah was plastering that, whatever you want to call it, pitch tar all over the outside of this ark, what he was proclaiming was the atonement of God. He didn't know the name of Jesus, but what he was saying is there is only one way. There's only one propitiation. And then he said, put a door in the side. It's the door for you. You can go in. John 10 and verse 9. I am the door, Jesus said. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. God's pleading with humankind today to be saved. He's pleading with you to enter in. But it won't last forever. Because one day the door will be shut. Now that's next week's message, but listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 2.5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And Peter's point is, if he didn't save the world back then, why do you think that the, the world is going to continue to exist forever the way it is. William Temple said the church is the only organization that exists solely for the benefit of those who are still outside it. Noah's witness was this. There is a day that the world is going to end. It's coming. And then he says, you can come in. The door is open. And folks, that's the same witness that you and I have on this earth. That we've been entrusted by the Holy Spirit to take that same message and to proclaim the wrath of our God that's coming. But the salvation that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. And folks, here's the thing. I want to challenge you. If you know Jesus, the ark has been built. You have room. You're going to make it out of here. Somebody say amen to that. I'm getting out of here. I'm, I'm not going to be here whenever this place burns up. But if you know that and you testify to that, what's your job? Your job is to find as many other people to take with you. That's your job. That is the only reason you exist. That's the only reason this church exists. Otherwise, God could just take us to heaven and we would be there. Wouldn't worship be so much better even in heaven? But thank, thank you, Cody, for leading us this morning. You did a fantastic job, but you're going to be even better in heaven, brother. It's going to be so much better there. So why don't we just go today, right? Because we're here. 
building a lifeboat for all those folks out there that don't know Jesus. Every effort that we make, that we, if we change something that you don't like, or we sing something that you don't like, I want you to understand it's a calculated effort and an attempt to reach people who don't know Jesus. It's not somebody's preference over somebody else's preference. We've got to get over that because, folks, this place is going down and it's going down in a hurry. And if you don't like some of the things that are happening here at the church, just go ask some of the young people in your life. Go ask some of them which they would prefer, and they'll tell you. And the point I'm trying to make right here is you can't complain, be complaining about the pitch on the inside of the walls of the ark, that it's not the right color. Or it doesn't suit my, my wants and my needs. What we need to be doing is getting outside of that ark. And get everybody that we can to follow us in. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to get outside of the ark today. And we're going to drive around and we're going to see our community. And what I want you to do is open your eyes. I want you to pray. I want you to have the the people of this community on your heart. I I want to read to you the words of a song. A song that you probably know, you've heard before. Brethren, we've met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power? While we try to preach the word, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. Brethren, pray in holy manner will be showered all around. Brethren, see poor sinners around you slumbering on the brink of woe. Death is coming. Hell is moving. Can you bear to let them go? See our fathers and our mothers, and our children sinking down. Brethren, pray, and holy manner will be showered all around. Sisters, will you join and help us? Moses' sister aided him. Will you help the trembling mourners who are struggling hard with sin? Tell them about the Savior. Tell them that he will be found. Sisters, pray, and holy manner will be showered all around. Is there here a trembling jailer seeking grace? Filled with fears? Is there here a a weeping Mary pouring forth a flood of tears? Brethren, join your cries to help them. Sisters, let your prayers abound. Pray, oh, pray that holy manna will be scattered all around. Let us love our God supreme. Let us love each other too. Let us love and pray for sinners till our God makes all things new. They don't call us home to heaven. At his table we'll sit down. Christ will gird himself in service with sweet manna all around. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If today, if, if you were to die today, would you 
stand before God and hear from Him, enter in? Or would you here depart from me, for I never knew you? If you don't know for sure that the wrath of God that was upon you has been placed upon Jesus, you can know that today. And it's simply asking Him to forgive you of your sin. To take it upon Himself. I know that's a hard thing to ask. But if you'll do it, He will answer that prayer. And so I want to invite you to do that today. Say, Lord Jesus, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I deserve your wrath. But Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and you are the only way for me to be saved. And so now I come to you. I ask Jesus that you would forgive me of my sin. Make me a new person. Put your spirit inside of me. And I'll live a life of thankfulness and gratitude for what you've done. Thank you for my salvation. In your name I pray. Amen. And will you stand with us? This is our invitation time. This is your opportunity to come. Come to Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you for my salvation. Thank you for saving me on the cross. I want to live for you. And if, if you are coming and you simply need prayer, our altar counselors will be here to pray for you. You come and pray. And if you're coming to join this church, to serve along the saints here at Myrtle Grove Baptist Church. We welcome you. This is your opportunity as well. Let us sing together.